0: Infotrack continues. Once again,
1: here's Chris Whitting. How you think about money can help you make better financial decisions. And our next guest says we can all learn a lot by observing very wealthy people. Paul Sullivan is the Wealth Matters columnist for the New York Times, and he's author of The Thin Green Line The Money Secrets of the Super Wealthy. Paul, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me on. You compare people who are rich with people who are wealthy. What's the difference there?
0: It may sound like I'm splitting the atom, but there's a very big difference. Rich, in my view, is a number. It's a number on a bank account, on a brokerage statement. Perhaps it's the number you get when you type your address into Zillow. It doesn't imply the security that comes with being wealthy. Wealthy is being able to make choices in life, not have choices made for you. Being wealthy is not about the amount of money you earn. It's about the choices and decisions you make that give you security.
1: What's the difference between how the average person thinks about money versus how a super wealthy person thinks about money?
0: The average person gets constrained by having, for example, a budget when it comes to debt. And a budget is about deprivation. It's like being on a diet, but with your money. And as we know, you know, diets fail. Budgets also fail. A super wealthy person is going to have a plan that involves choices and that has contingencies in case something goes wrong. I mean, most likely something will go wrong. But that plan toward whatever that goal may be, be that goal to be more philanthropic, be that goal to buy another house or to use money in the best possible way, to educate their children. There's always a plan there and it's always it has that positive spin to it, not that negative connotation of depriving ourselves of something.
1: Is your advice targeted to people climbing the financial ladder or could it also work for somebody who's barely making ends meet?
0: Look, I wish I could say it could help somebody barely making ends meet, but this is geared more towards the middle class reader and up. I mean, the unfortunate thing is life is unfair. If you're barely making it you've got to focus on the necessities in life you've got to pay your rent you've got to feed yourself you don't have as many choices as you would when you get a bit more money but this isn't geared toward you know people who would be considered rich in most ways it's geared toward people you know once you start making 50 sixty thousand dollars a year you start to have choices you know all of the uses of your money are not prescribed for you and so the book really hits to people you know, once they have choices and and to help them make better choices to secure their financial future.
1: In your book, The Thin Green Line, you talk about the fears and insecurities people have around money. Talk about that.
0: Money is just a means of exchange. If you have more money, you can buy more things. If you have less money, you can buy less things. It should be the simplest thing in the world to understand. But of course, it isn't. And money gets traded with all of these Emotions. It comes to represent things like self-worth. It comes to represent things like power or its opposite weakness. It comes to represent comparison between you and your neighbor or you and some fictional person that you imagine has more than you somewhere else in the country. And that's a problem. I talk about money scripts that really hurt people. There's four main money scripts and you know, one of the common ones, you know, for people who struggle is, you know, their net worth becomes their self-worth, or also the belief that, you know, if only I had a little bit more money, life would be better. And, you know, neither of these
1: is true. In your book, you talk about three ways to save money, which are not how most people think about savings. Could you share that with us?
0: You know, people fall into certain categories with many things when it comes to money. And the very notion of saving, and of course, it's the opposite spending. I thought, where do people fall? And I came up with three different categories. You can be accumulator you can be a dissipator or you can be what i call a make and spender so what are these three things well the accumulator is the person who works his or her entire life doesn't spend anything save 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 gets to not the end but you know the last couple of decades and says okay what am i going to do now and that person is then just Spending the money. Maybe it's spending the money just to live, or maybe that accumulator is spending the money on a passion project. In the book, I talk about somebody who goes out and, and buys a vineyard after a lifetime of selling shower doors. Well, the dissipator is that person's opposite. The dissipator is the person who gets a windfall and then has to manage that throughout his or her life. The easy thing to think of is an inheritor, but Look, there aren't as many inheritors as we might think in popular imagination, or at least not as many who are getting a hundred million bucks. I mean, that dissipator could be a great athlete, or it could be a tech entrepreneur, somebody who gets a big hit, and that's gonna be the pinnacle of that person's wealth, and, you know, he or she needs to manage it down, as it were. And of course, making spenders, that's what most of us are. That's where most of us fall into this category, and that's where we have so much choice we're making a certain amount of money we're hoping to save some of it but we've got the expenses as we're going along and so in that category that last one the make and spenders the decisions we make the behaviors we exhibit that's really going to determine what side of the thin green line we're on
1: you share stories in your book about people I'm wondering if you could share a story about somebody who maybe didn't make a lot of money but made all the right decisions and ended up in a good place
0: well the book starts with a very personal story, and I talk about the first person I ever met who was wealthy, and that was my grandfather. My grandfather had a high school education, you know, went into World War II in the Army, and then his dream job was to work for the post office. He wanted to do it. It was a secure job. It was a well-paying job. He lived through the Depression. But then it wasn't necessarily, you know, the type of job you'd associate with somebody who'd be able to accumulate great wealth. Well, toward the end of his life, you know, a guy who'd never probably made more than twenty thirty thousand dollars a year had three four hundred thousand dollars saved up he had his you know 900 square foot ranch house paid off but more than those numbers because again you know numbers are rich and poor more than those numbers he was able to do all the things he wanted to do now granted these are modest things by some people's standards but they were what he wanted to do he could play golf three times a week at the local municipal course with his buddies. Yeah, my grandmother could go out to dinner once a week. She could go off on a day trip with her sister. It was exactly the life he wanted, and he was secure and he had choices, and that to me is somebody who is
1: wealthy. So what do you say to somebody who maybe feels very compelled to keep up with the Joneses and, you know, buy that bigger house they really can't quite afford? How do you tell somebody to constrain that impulse?
0: Don't do it. (laughs) You're going to lose in the end. You know, think back to 2008. If you live a life where you believe the future is going to be a better version than the present, always, you're putting more risk into your life than there needs to be. Maybe the future will be better. Hopefully it is better. I mean, we're Americans. We're optimistic by nature. But, you know, the chapter on debt, I talk a lot about people in a town called Darien, Connecticut, always rated one of the top 10 wealthiest or most affluent towns in America. And there was a certain type of mortgage that was very popular there that allowed people to just pay the interest for five, seven, ten years. And if it had worked as it was supposed to work, it would have been fine. People would have paid the interest. Most people there work in financial services. When they got their big bonus, they'd pay down the principal, and it was a great way to manage their cash flow. But unfortunately, this wasn't what happened. These people thought the values of their house would go up just as much as people in you know Nevada or California or Arizona, you know, three states that typically get beaten up for the housing crash, just as people in those states thought values would go up. People in this super affluent town of Darien, Connecticut, thought the same thing. And, of course, you know, when that didn't happen and when instead of paying down the principal on their mortgage, they took that bonus money and bought a second home or took a nice vacation at Turks and Caicos or joined all kinds of clubs. Well, when they all lost their jobs in the financial crash and then the value of their house went down, they were in for a world of woe. And it was all because they thought The future is going to always be a better version than the present. And that's problematic for anybody, no matter how much money you make.
1: The book is The Thin Green Line, The Money Secrets of the Super Wealthy. Paul Sullivan is the author. And you can learn more at pauljsullivan.com. Paul, thanks so much for joining us today on InfoTrack.
0: Thanks for having me on. I really enjoyed it.
1: You're listening to InfoTrack, the weekly show with information you should know.